operating 152 facilities across seven states, the Providence Group strongly believes the best decisions are made at the local level. Each of Providence Group's facilities have their own unique needs, along with the other healthcare providers across the care continuum in each respective market. That means being deeply integrated into each individual community is crucial, according to CEO Jason Murray. It's a model that's been replicated by operators across the country, and one that he sees as the best model for success in the skilled nursing industry. I spoke with Murray more on Providence's decentralized market model type of structure, what factors he considers when looking to grow, and more. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight an upcoming event. On April 20th, Skilled Nursing News and Aging Media are presenting the second annual Clinical Executive Conference in Washington, D.C. This event will bring together clinical and business leaders in skilled nursing to talk about payments, operations, clinical research, staffing, and more. The conference will feature speakers from leading providers from across the country and is a great opportunity to network and learn from peers in a fast-paced environment. Learn more about the conference at skillednursingnews.com forward slash events. Providence Group leans into the premise that healthcare is local. <clears throat> Jason, can you share with listeners why that's important and how that has played out in the company's portfolio? Sure. We believe that healthcare is local, and, and that's been a, a strong belief of ours and an idea that we have worked hard to try and keep as we've grown. And we do that through our, our local policies, procedures, business practices. So in, in practical terms, what that means is that we try and make as many decisions as close to our patients and employees as possible. We believe each of our facilities is unique. Their needs are unique. And we believe our administrators and their teams are best equipped to make the best and you know, most appropriate decisions for their patients and employees. So as a management company supporting those you know, different facilities, we, we work to support that model. And could you tell us a little bit more about the portfolio makeup and kind of what markets you guys are all in? Yes, we uh, operate, own and operate 152 facilities across the country. We're we're in seven states and we have roughly uh, 15,000 skilled nursing beds and just over about 25,000 employees. So we're in the states of, of California, Nevada. We're in Texas. Kentucky, Ohio, Missouri, South Carolina, and I believe that's seven, right? (laughs) (laughs) No worries. And so how does um, the Providence Administrative Consulting Services factor into your overall model? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? We use that that longer-term Providence Administrative Consulting Services. The acronym that we use is PACS. So PACS uh, is it's our management company, and it provides administrative support for each of our locations. You know, since as we talked earlier, since our company embraces the decentralized management model, PACS exists to really support and empower our administrators and their teams to execute on their business plans, the plans that they create. PACS does this by hopefully removing some of the administrative burden of operating skilled nursing facilities, you know, such as finance and accounting and clinical training, support, legal, compliance, IT, things of that nature. And, and we do that in order to keep our teams laser focused on providing the best possible care and, and working environment for our patients and uh, our employees. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure that's definitely something that has been helpful as many facilities across the country are, are trying to get to the floor as much as possible and reduce those administrative burdens uh, as the staffing shortage continues on. Yeah, for, for sure. And I mean, again, we operate nursing facilities, so we provide nursing care, right? And that is that is the crux of what we do. And again, we believe the PACs, uh, as a management company, we, we can't get in the way of that. Uh, our administrators need to feel empowered. They need to feel as though they have that support in order to execute their their business plans. That so really, that is our our purpose is to is to be as supportive as possible and do it in a manner that's not disruptive to that uh, delivery of care. Absolutely, and I know several other providers have kind of moved toward this decentralized market model type of structure. And I'm kind of curious if you see this as kind of the way of the future for this industry and, and if there's room still for the skilled nursing giants and the standalone facilities? You know, that's, that's a good question. You know, again, we, we believe that healthcare is local. And so, so each community across the country has unique needs in the post-acute care continuum that you know, we as providers can meet, right? And so that requires us to be deeply integrated in our community so we know how to serve its needs. And, you know, we, we believe, I believe, that this is the most effective management model for our industry. And, and so personally, I hope to see more providers evolve into that. So it, it's been my experience that as organizations grow, they feel the need to add layers upon layers of additional support staff. And, you know, by, by doing this, you further distance yourself. The C-suite, you know, distances itself and the corporate office distances itself from the actual patient and the employee experience. And so it becomes easy at that point to lose touch with the actual needs of our patients and employees. And you know, when this happens, it becomes incredibly difficult. And, and I would even argue impossible to appropriately meet the needs of our patients and employees. And so I believe, you know, as you look, and my experience has been, as you look at the landscape of providers today, it has changed. When I got in the industry 20 years ago, 22 years ago, it's changed. And uh, some of these larger providers who, who have a, a centralized model of making decisions and disseminating that out to the facilities, we've, I think, seen through sad uh, experience that that does not work. And, and because of that, those, those larger companies now no longer exist. So, you know, I, again, believe strongly in this, this concept of keeping healthcare local. And we as a company believe as we continue to grow and as we continue to, to scale in not only the markets that we're currently in, but in other markets across the country, we can still accomplish growth by not adding those layers. And I think part of that I guess the battle of, of working through that balance is first understanding that we, we can't get too top heavy as an organization. And uh, so I think just understanding and having an acknowledgement that, that it's easy for that to happen, I think puts us in check as a company and uh, has allowed us to avoid, I think, some of those pitfalls that, that other uh, companies in the past have, have had to deal with. Definitely. And that, that segues nicely into my next question for you. I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the factors that you keep in mind when looking to grow either into a new market or expand into an existing one? So I would say what I believe makes us unique as a provider is 
our ability to recruit and retain some of the best talent in healthcare and in business management. We're a leadership company. And so I, we believe our administrators are the best leaders in, in each of the communities we serve across the country. So as we consider growth, you know, one of the most important decision points for us is whether we have talent necessary to operate the facilities we may be targeting. If the answer is yes, that we have that talent, um, the underwriting and diligent process becomes a little easier. So I, I would say that's our, our main decision point is the ability to infuse talent into whatever targets we're looking at. And as a company, I guess I would just further say as a company, we have have worked hard at at developing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're a leadership company. We've worked hard at developing a deep bench of talent that can help us as we grow. So what that looks like is that we at any given time have, you know, close to today I believe it's about 30 administrators in training across our our portfolio where we are actively working on developing these future leaders into administrators who will then take over the enterprises of of their facilities and 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 do special things and that is something again we feel as a company is unique to us is our our ability to attract that talent and when we talk about the landscape of talent at the administrator level within our company we have some highly skilled individuals. So we're talking people who are, you know, previous business owners, prior professional athletes, collegiate athletes, highly entrepreneurial type minded individuals who are driven to this concept and idea that they are the captains of their ships. When they have, when they are running their facilities, they are the captains. They have the ability to make decisions and affect change in a way that they maybe can't do in, in other industries. Once uh, our future leaders and our current leaders see that vision, being able to impact people's lives in a positive way, it truly is infectious. And so our, our model, I'd also share, is, is not for everyone. That the idea of, of having the reins of, of an enterprise to, to create a business plan and and in, in many cases, we're taking distressed assets and to turn those distressed assets around to see the transformation with the patients and the care model and uh, with our employees as well and their engagement, that whole continuum takes a unique personality. And it's not for everyone. And so we, we have found, as we've interviewed individuals, that sometimes they just don't gravitate towards that. And so we, we've tried to be very, very selective on, on who we include in our leadership teams. And that makes a lot of sense. I've heard from other providers that they consider their administrators kind of like mini CEOs. So that kind of speaks to some of what you're talking about with being the captain of the ship. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's let's take a brief step back and kind of talk about your own journey into this role as CEO. How did you get into healthcare and work your way up the career ladder? Uh, maybe I'm unique in this, but I, I've always known that I wanted to work in healthcare. I just didn't quite know exactly where. So when I was in my undergraduate studies, I was uh, pretty much all over the place. I wanted to be a physical therapist, and then I wanted to be a pharmacist, and finally settled on pre-med and was working my way through preparing for, for medical school when I, I took an advanced anatomy course and, and had a moment of clarity where I realized that uh, I could not practice medicine. And so a good friend of mine who was going through the program at the same time, he 
recommended that I look at healthcare administration. And at the time, I had no idea that that was even a thing, uh, let alone a career. And, and so I was introduced to the dean of, of that program, and he took me under his wing, and I instantly fell in love with, with the idea of, of the business side of healthcare. And so uh, along the way in my studies, I, I was uh, introduced to nursing homes and long-term care administration and, and never looked back at that point. And so as I was going to school, I, I cold-called. A, uh, a nursing home that was right by about five minutes down the street from my home where I was living at the time. And uh, the administrator was very kind to entertain my idea of trying to do a, an internship so that I could graduate with my undergraduate degree. I, I needed that for, for one of my classes. It was like a 200-hour internship, I believe. And uh, again, he was, he was kind enough to accommodate that for me. And that 200-hour internship turned into uh, an administrator in training position with that company. And, and as I went through that, I uh, was, was able to, to get my license and then worked for that company for a period of time, first in Oklahoma and then moved back to the state of Utah and uh, worked in several of their locations. And, and after that, transitioned to a couple of different companies here in the state of Utah and uh, was, was happily doing that for a period of time. And then and then I, I decided to go back and get a, a graduate degree in, uh, in healthcare administration. And w- with the idea that, you know, that would potentially help me with uh, additional opportunities in, in healthcare management and didn't really think too much about leaving long-term care, but an opportunity came up where a large integrated acute care uh, system uh, approached me about uh, an opportunity and I, and I did that. So I, I left long-term care for a period of time for about two years and worked in acute care as an executive for Intermountain Healthcare, which is a, a large integrated healthcare system here in the state of Utah, as well as they've expanded to other states now. And was, was comfortably doing that and happily doing that when uh, a good friend of mine called me up and said he had an opportunity to, to buy two nursing homes in San Diego, California. Uh, where his brother-in-law was looking to exit the the space, do something different, and and was looking for someone to come in and and uh, take over their business. And so, my friend asked me to take a look at it, and we looked at it together. We went out and met with the gentleman who owned the company. Mind you, I was I was very comfortable working in acute care, and so I it, it took some convincing from my my good friend to to do this. But the the idea and notion of taking, I guess, my experience in long-term care. And at the time, I think I'd worked in, in nursing home as an administrator for 12 years or so, something like that. Taking the, that experience and then coupling it with that experience on the acute side, and then taking this potential platform that we were looking at and, and expanding it and growing it was very intriguing to me. So this, uh, this entrepreneurial itch that I had kind of got the best of me. And we, uh, I decided to, to leave acute care and get back into skilled nursing. That was my, I guess, foray into the leadership role that I'm in today, which is the CEO and, and the principal owner of uh, Providence Group PAX. Was, that was the path, was, was through the ownership route. But there's no way I could have accomplished, I think, where I'm at today or uh, arrived where I'm at today without that past experience with being willing to go to different parts of the country, be willing to take challenging facilities. Fortunately, my wife's very understanding, and she's uh, we've moved our family around a little bit, 
and then and then I would add the schooling as well was uh, I, I believe uh, a necessity for for me to to follow the path that I did. I, I needed to have that background as well. So I guess all of that put together, and again, that's the sorry, Jordan, that's a long answer. All of that put together, I think, helped me get to where I am today. No, absolutely, and and it's interesting that you did have some experience on the acute care side. I'm sure that that has been helpful in a more holistic view, as, especially as what we've seen, you know, the the relationship between the nursing home and the hospital has changed quite a bit, especially since COVID. So I'm sure that's proved to be useful for you. It sure has. It, it's honestly been invaluable to to get that exposure and to understand, you know, what hospitals are looking at, what their attitude is towards nursing homes and and how you know nursing homes fit into that post-acute continuum, that has been very, very helpful. And, and it helps as we get in front of you know, different hospital providers, uh, managed care providers, insurers, that sort of thing. It, it helps that uh, sometimes I can, I can speak that language. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so going back to staffing a little bit, I know you talked about some of the leadership training and administrator um, and training and those kinds of things, but I'm just kind of curious if you could share some more staffing wins that Providence Group has had this year and what some of the ongoing challenges are and if there's any markets in particular that are harder to staff than others that you guys have found. Okay, yeah. So staffing staffing is has been, still is a major challenge for our industry. You know, like Many providers, we've been working hard to to combat that challenge. Um, we we have had wins along the way, but I would say one thing that we've worked hard to to do is is track and trend the KPIs related to our workforce. And I'm very proud of the fact that we perform very well in relation to the different states and national averages for key metrics like staff turnover, staff satisfaction, and and I would say one. If I could share maybe one strategy that I think has helped us in this area is the idea of creating a career path for our clinical staff. And so what that looks like in our company is, it, and, and I know we're not unique in this, other providers have, have done similar things, but but we have found that it, it's created some stickiness for us uh, with our staff. And, and it's also helped boost morale in our facilities, especially during extremely challenging times. So what that looks like is we have CNA schools across the country and and the different markets that we're in. So we can take someone who's interested in becoming a CNA and after a period of time, get them certified and and they work for, you know, hopefully quite some time in the facilities in those markets where we have the schools. We have a career path for CNAs to become LPNs or LVNs. So that that includes going to school and, and for us paying for that schooling. We have a career path for our LVNs and LPNs to become RNs if they have that interest. And again, that includes us paying for their schooling in order for them to, to achieve that. We, we have a career path for our RNs to become directors of nursing or to become case managers or other leaders within our facilities or within our regional leadership as well in the different markets that we're in. So all, all of that combined, I think, has helped. There's other strategies we've deployed as well, but I would say that that one has been uh, one of our most effective at uh, creating stickiness with our staff and, and improving morale. That makes a lot of sense. I guess the other part of your question is, are there markets in particular that are harder to staff than others? I would also say this is challenging where it's been a, a pretty uniform challenge across our portfolio. So as I mentioned earlier, we operate from California to South Carolina. Al- although the specific 
challenges are unique to the markets that we're in and the communities that we're in, there are a lot of similarities between what's happening in South Carolina versus what's happening in in California versus what's happening in, in Kentucky. One of the challenges that we have, specific challenges that we've been facing in one of the states that we've been in, the pressures from the staffing agencies and their practice of essentially poaching our staff and uh, and then and then renting them back to us, right? For for or uh, you know a much higher wage than what we'd be paying them otherwise, and and so that's been a challenge. So one thing that we've done to combat that is is we've opened our own staffing agencies, and those staffing agencies staff our facilities, and it's created healthy tension and competition in the markets where where we've where we've struggled with the staffing agencies, and and it it is um, it's, again was we've looked at those KPIs. We have seen a marked improvement in our staffing utilization and just the overall cost of staffing. And so that's that's another strategy that we deployed, I think, that's been helpful. Yeah, yeah. It definitely has been interesting to see because there's have been quite a few providers actually that have kind of created their own pool or their own staffing agency to kind of combat some of those issues. I also think it's interesting in talking about your um, leadership and career ladders and kind of creating that career program for your staff. It's something that I think on a larger scale has been talked about a lot because the reality is, is that until that career program or until that career philosophy is um, spread across the industry, there will be people that will continue to come and go and, and think of it as more of a short-term stint type of thing in some ways. So I think it's interesting to hear that you guys are kind of putting that into practice and sounds like you're getting some good feedback and results and, and retaining people, which is certainly the, the goal at the end of the day. It, it certainly is. And again, I would point to the KPIs that we measure regularly on in this area. Uh, it, it's showing that what we're doing is working. Do we still have challenges? For sure, we do. And, and we're not out of the woods yet, with, you know, particularly with our staffing agencies and a few of the markets that we're in. But, but what we are doing is working. And, and so we will you know, continue to enhance that and, and improve it to you know, hopefully win in this area. Certainly. And so what do you see as the biggest regulatory challenge or threat <clears throat> the nursing home industry? That's a hard question. There's, uh, there, there's a lot of things on the horizon uh, that we have, you know, working with ACA and, and some of our state associations that we, we have a very close eye on. I, I would say if I had to, to point out maybe one that is the most concerning to me would be the mandatory staffing requirements in the states where there, there are currently none. And the reason that that is concerning to me is, you know, really twofold. Number one is that it would be unfunded, right? And so they would require providers to essentially utilize the reimbursement that we receive to meet those obligations. That is challenging in and of itself. But then you pile on top of that an extremely challenging workforce uh, with the dynamic of, of shortages in, in pretty much every market that we're in for nurses and for CNAs and other clinicians it is very difficult to to understand a scenario where mandatory staffing requirements would be a net benefit for our uh, industry under the current circumstances that we're in. Now, we are more than happy to continue to provide staff and even more staff in our facilities as the staff is available and and as there is funding to provide that staffing in our facilities. And so that's been our, our attitude and efforts with the different associations that we've been working with. And as we talk with legislators as well, is 
you know, we're, we're open to regulatory changes as long as they are funded. And so hopefully that, that gains traction with the audience that we've been talking to. And, and, uh, and certainly hopefully the, the, the mandatory staffing requirements don't get too much traction until the landscape changes within the workforce across the country. Yeah, I know that providers are anxiously awaiting to see what comes of that in the study and the impending uh, regulations. So I, I know you're not alone in that one. Right. And so um, the public health emergency was recently extended through mid-January of 2023, but many, including CMS, are urging providers to prepare for the end of the COVID-related supports that have been in place and the waivers. How many of the states where you operate have extended or made permanent the Medicaid rate bumps? And um, do you think it's important for those who have not to do so? So, uh, yes. So the short answer is yes. We feel like it would be beneficial for those rates to continue, obviously. As far as the what life looks like post-pandemic, we've already started, and I'm sure we're not unique in this, but we've already started looking at what life looks like post-pandemic pandemic and, and been planning for that for, for several several months now. As you point out, you know, many of those relief funds and financial assistances for that the states have deployed and the CMS has deployed have now gone away or or will be going away. And so we need to be able to operate in the current environment where we have record inflation and where we have a very challenging workforce. We have to continue to to operate in those challenging environments. Otherwise, we won't make it. And, and so, and I know there are providers out there that are struggling because of these different pressures that, that we feel, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to those challenges. So to answer the other part of your question, every one of the states that we operate in, with I think the exception of Missouri, did some sort of financial support for the facilities during the pandemic. And they all, it ranged in, you know, add-ons for Medicaid to lump sums, but those those have in large part gone away. There are a couple of states where they have continued to line up the support with the with the public health emergency. And so, if the, when the public health emergency goes away, those funds then would go away. For example, the state of California has extended their their Medicaid add-on until the end of 2023. Which uh, gives you know us some runway, which is helpful. It gives us a little bit of runway to uh, work out something that's more sustainable going forward on the Medicaid rates. In Kentucky, for example, they they are working on making that add-on permanent, which is encouraging. And uh, I know the associations, the local state associations, and every state that we work in have been great help in advocating for additional financial support in order for us to meet the needs of the challenging environment that we're in today. So, so we're hopeful that we'll continue to see rates that will, that will hopefully help meet some of the uh, current needs that we have. And, and that as, as things change with the pandemic, you know, we're hopeful that legislators see that there's, there has to be some additional consideration for the environment that we operate in today. And thinking a little bit more broadly, I'm curious if you could share and describe what your vision is of the skilled nursing facility of the future. What do you see it being? I would say the changes that we've seen over the last, call it 10 years or so, of the acuity being pushed down from the hospital into the skilled nursing facilities, that is 
not going away. And we, we believe that it will continue to flow. The acuity from the hospital continue to flow into the, into the skilled nursing facilities and that we as, as providers need to be prepared for that level of acuity. So what that looks like is being able to obviously track staff, but also train staff and have the resources that they need in order to take care of that increased acuity. There will always be a need for skilled nursing facilities in the healthcare continuum. That will always be a need. There's 15,000 across the country today. And as we know, with the aging population, that is not going to be enough to meet the needs of the aging population in the United States. And so one of two things needs to happen. Either we need to build more or there will be an evolution of facilities, skilled nurse, existing skilled nursing facilities taking more acuity and then some of that being pushed down to maybe even assisted livings or home health, that, that care being done in the home. And so I, I believe that not only will we see acuity continue to get pushed down to the facilities, but the, the healthcare expenditures will continue to be put in the lowest cost setting. And so if you can take care of a diagnosis in the home cheaper than you can in a skilled nursing facility, then I believe that's what you're going to see. And we're already seeing that some of that today. I, I just think as you look towards the future, you're going to see more of that. So again, that requires us to, as skilled nursing providers, to as their opportunity to, to do something in the ancillary space, to, to provide as much touch on that patient post-acute as we possibly can in order to help control the outcomes post-acute. So that's, I guess, where I see the vision of the future in our space. And as a company, we're trying to position ourselves so that we can have as much touch on that patient post-acute so that we are in a good position to succeed, you know, even with all the pressures and, and changes that, uh, that will happen in years to come. And so since this is the Rethink podcast, uh, what, do you, what do you think is one thing that providers should rethink about the industry? You know, I, I believe that providers need to embrace the idea that we are going to, to continue to have to do more with less. We're going to have to continue to be experts at becoming efficient at what we do. We are going to, to have to evolve as an industry to, to attract to make skilled nursing a destination location for leaders. And, and I think as we, as we do that, as we can attract talent, if we, as we can attract, pull talent from the hospitals, pull talent from, from other healthcare industries uh, or segments within the healthcare sector and, and bring them to skilled nursing. And, and if, if providers can rethink that, rethink their, their efforts to, to make their companies, make their facilities a destination for, for employment, for talent, that is going to transform our industry. And it's going to elevate everyone. It's going to make all the facilities across the country better if we can, if we can work towards that end. So, uh, you know, that's something, again, as I've, as I've mentioned throughout this interview here, we, we are working tirelessly to do as a company. You know, I would hope others would put the same effort and attention in that. It's not easy to do. It's not cheap to do either, but it will absolutely pay dividends from a quality of care standpoint, from an economic standpoint as well, if we're willing to create special destination locations for our staff to want to come. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. 
Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.